0: One all stations. Treat. Order imperative. Immediate retreat.
1: Welcome to the Trap One Podcast. I'm Mark. I'm Jason. Thank you for joining me, gentlemen. Uh, first of all, let me thank you, Jason, for hosting the podcast while I took a break very much enjoyed your episode on the tv movie novelization um and a great job with the big name guest readings as well
0: yes and thank you for putting me back in the passenger seat where i most definitely belong <laughs>
2: that's quite a quite a um, quite a big name pull you got for that for the, the reading there
0: oh I, I i have my connections dear boy i have my connections <laughs> <laughs> it's who you know
2: it's who you know
1: So uh, as as we're all aware, the the world's not a great place at the moment um, with everything that's going on, so I thought it would be nice to get together and discuss a nice, fun Doctor Who story. Um, So let's see, the latest vinyl release is The Massacre, the fun historical romp, The Massacre, or The Massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
2: Carry on massacring, that's what it's known as to some people.
0: (laughs) This is the story that made City of Death seem like a tragedy. (laughs) (laughs)
1: The Massacre is available today For the August drop of Record Store Day Uh, It's been delayed from earlier in the year Due to COVID-19 And has been split in three monthly drops The further one in October and September Um, Other vinyls out today That Doctor Who fans might be interested in Are the Dune soundtrack The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy The original albums The BBC Radiophonic Workshop uh, One called The Four Albums 1968-1978 to and Celebrity Doctor Who fans' Goldie looking chains classic album, Original Pirate Material. <laughs>
2: uh, and the Mas- no, are they, are they really, really Doctor Who fans? Uh, they, they were on
1: Doctor Who Confidential, weren't they, I think?
2: Oh my god, I'd forgotten that. That's okay. amazing. I like them even more now.
1: I, I am doubting myself now. I thought they
2: were. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, know. let's make it canon. It's in a podcast yeah. now. It is now official. <laughs> yeah, sure. So they're, they're from Wales. Probably got cardiff connections so.
1: yeah absolutely uh, so the massacre is another beautiful Doctor who release um gorgeous artwork on the cover um Parisian blaze pattern on the discs themselves um, I think the the cover art on the vinyl range is has been really really stunning like on every release um, and I think it really differentiates it sets it apart from all the other doctor who releases are nothing like the the covers for the blu-rays the DVDs books audio books anything like that um, it's, uh, it, it sets them apart um, kind of evocative but they, you see the Doctor or the Companions on there you see the Daleks on the Evil of the Daleks and Dalek Masterplan ones, the TARDIS is on a couple of them um, the Abominable Snowman one's great just with the, with the Yeti on the front um, but yeah really uh, a really nice collection and this is another example
0: Who do they get to do the artwork for the vinyl is it Lee Bimey or do they have a different artist
2: I think it's somewhat different, and, and and I don't know if they actually get credited on on, on the sleeves themselves. So it's a, it may be a bit of a mystery to uh, to investigate at some point, because it's such a distinctive style, isn't it? It's all mm-hmm. almost cartoonish, but not, but, but just yeah, and like you said, just really. The, the, there is a definite house style to most Doctor Who things that this is these are different to, and yet, and and that that makes them really distinctive and just really, really arty.
0: I'm a big fan of Lee Binding's work, not least because his Twitter feed is one of the few places you can go on Twitter without wanting to kill yourself afterwards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yes, he gives it very, very wisely to amazing art and smut, and, and really that's, yeah. that's what Twitter ought to be much more focused on, In, innuendo and pretty pictures, that's what we really yeah. go there for. Uh, yes.
1: Yeah, because he does the covers for the, the Blu-ray collections, doesn't he, which are absolutely gorgeous as well.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. And it's nice that, that these two ranges don't try to ape each other. They're both doing the, they're doing their own thing and that gives it it makes them both look like just really nice really really nice collections. Mm.
0: Agreed.
1: Yeah, cuz other than the uh destiny of the daleks, they've they've stuck pretty much to the first two doctors, haven't they, and um uh and avoided the animations as well, I think, um or at least you know there'll be some uh, you know, they've uh, there probably be some gap between any of the, uh, the ones that get an animated in any of the vinyl releases. So they have carved out their own niche, I think. Um, and I guess listening to things from the '60s on vinyl, I know like the does have its detractors. Um, the idea of listening to things on vinyl, um, but I think it's it was probably the dominant form that you would you would listen to things in the '60s, and that's when these are from. So it's uh, it's a quite pleasingly authentic as well.
2: Yeah, it's easy to forget that. It, it, and even into the '80s, that was still really a thing, like with, with things like faulty, the comedies mainly, I suppose, but things like Faulty Towers episodes coming out on LP, and you just sit and listen to them on, on a record. Uh, they weren't that far removed from from radio. I
0: think the very first two Doctor Who, Doctor Who stories released commercially would have been The Chase and Genesis of the Daleks, both on vinyl. This is, of course, before the '1980s and VHS.
1: I didn't realize The Chase was vinyl released.
0: Yeah, is it a really wild
2: edited down version that's about fifteen minutes long or something?
0: I think it's just the highlights of episode six. I believe it's like a twenty or thirty minute excerpt from the final episode that is on vinyl. I know I've heard it uh, many years ago through a different channel, uh, but it was released on audio. Part of it, I'm not sure why, but yeah. it is there.
2: <laughs> yeah. So it is a. It's not It's not a. It's not an alien environment for Doctor Who at all, is it? Yeah.
1: That's it. And then the the Pescatons as well. Obviously was uh that was a, a vinyl release, wasn't it? Of an original story, a forerunner to Big Finish. about twenty-five years before before Big Finish got the license. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So the Massacre um is a is a pure historical. Um and not really like any other historical, I think. It's what occurred to me listening to it this time is you don't, because the Doctor is missing for the majority of it, so you don't have the Doctor there as a guide, you don't have Barbara there sort of explaining anything about the period and what's going on. So it's, it's kind of, in a way, more like one of the science fiction series of the era with uh, Stephen just having to figure everything out for himself. He's just kind of dropped into it and he has to learn what, what's going on, who the players are. Um, I thought that, that kind of uh, differentiates it a little bit from, from some of the other historicals of the era
0: as such an inept hero and he manages to fail at almost everything he's trying to do this is exactly what would happen to me if i were to get randomly dropped back into p72 by myself that is how i would wind up at the end of part three being chased by an angry bloodthirsty mob (laughs) <laughs> As opposed to companions in the new series who save the day and become folk heroes, and Martha Jones walks the Earth for a year, and getting everybody to love the Doctor. No. So, <laughs> yeah, that'll be having This story is what really happens to companions yeah. who are on their own in history. Good luck
2: yeah like he doesn't know what the coins are called he can't find his way back to the the place that he was at one there's a bit where he says someone someone asked him to go back to where where they met earlier he's like i've only ever been there once i don't know how to get there (laughs) which
0: he's giving him one bit of information and can't even pass it on properly without getting challenged to a sword fight Yeah, and it's the whole format.
2: The format is just doesn't quite know what to do with it, does it? And I'm sure we'll get to it when we get, we'll go through it a bit more. But yeah, because um, it's this production team's first real story, all of their own, isn't it? After being handed the Dalek Master Plan by by Verity Lambert as she was leaving, they, uh, they, they it's like they've got this idea of a historical now, and they and they're really unsure about what the rules are for. And I think there was behind the scenes. Um, Disagree quite strong behind the scenes disagreements about what what counted as interference and what could the doctor actually do. So you get this story, yeah, which is just it is not doing what the other historical stories tend to do at all. It's it's uh, it's a completely different structure.
0: It is a train wreck of a production because you have <laughs> the, the incoming producers was trying to fire William Hartnell and you have the script editor quits at the end of the story and hands it off to somebody else with the thickens of a cliffhanger. And you have, hold on to your seats, you have a female director. Is that going to work? Are they allowed to do that? <laughs> Are they put a woman in charge? <laughs> and and, and with, all that, with all that, you get probably the best, the most realistic, most amazing story Doctor Who has ever done with a complete train wreck of a production. It's almost accidental art.
2: <laughs> the uh, the novel is a, is a is a is a weird um alternative because that shows you lucarotti's writes writ, writ, it's completely different as well half of it is almost completely different the target novelization he oh. goes off in a completely different direction i guess showing us all the stuff that he really wants to include or maybe that he had second thoughts about um yeah
0: the massacre works with a happy ending the way that Lucarotti wrote it. You're used, to, you're waiting for this downbeat TV ending, and instead Hartnell saves the day, and he gives a speech and inspires everybody, and he mitigates the massacre, and he and Stephen leave as friends. Uh, that's charming, yes, but that's not that's not what the massacre is.
1: Because apparently no, he also he also didn't have access to his original script, so it's not uh, the novelization isn't actually his original vision. It's him coming to it twenty years later trying to remember what his original script was. And then with the benefit of, of 20 years hindsight and new research that he did, um, he's, he's putting his own spin on it. Um, according to the complete history anyway, those original scripts that he submitted are, are actually lost. We only have the ones that Donald Tosh um, edited um, and, and changed vastly because I think at one point Lucarotti asked for his name to be taken off them because it had been changed so much.
0: Right, there's a debate as to whether or not his name even went out. I think with a loose cannon reconstruction, his name does not even appear in the opening credits. Of course, yeah, because okay. yeah, there there's,
2: there's no telesnaps of this one, is there? Um, just a handful of pictures. In fact, this this is sort of the dark... Is this the darkest Doctor Who story in terms of how little of it there is to see as well as its tone? And that, that we've got... We're really peering in, at a really faint... Sort of um, thing from the past that we can only just glimpse. It's amazing that um, we've got those audios because without them, they'd just been. If it was just a script to read, it would we wouldn't really get the tone at all. Which is the, the one thing that it absolutely uh, that it absolutely brings.
0: Very dense script to be sure, but mm. Pat, Patty Russell does such great casting, bringing in some of the best guest yeah. actors Doctor Who has had. If you're just yeah. reading it as a transcript without the actors bringing it to life, it is a slog to read. Even though it's transcendent to listen to but it is a slog to read just as words without accuracy
1: Hmm. i believe the australian censors didn't even have a problem with it so we haven't even got any clips from the uh the australian cutting room floor um just you know talking about it being one of the darkest episodes it's uh there's not even anything any scraps from there is there to see any performances
2: no, considering there's tens of thousands of deaths involved, they're not actually on screen, or they're done by the medium of woodcuts, which I guess get, even the Australian censors couldn't object to a mid medieval woodcut being flashed up on screen. <laughs> Although they were pretty touchy.
0: But <laughs> so with, with Patty and Russell, you have the director who did Horror of Fang Rock, which is Doctor Who's best story set in a shoebox, and you have the director of Pyramids of Bars. You can imagine that she would have done incredible things with the staging and and the blocking because Patty Russell was one of the best classic series directors. So you can imagine what the story could have looked like and it's literally a crying shame that we will never know unless Philip Morris wants to come out of his anti-woke agenda on uh, Twitter and release the actual uh, film cans that may be sitting in the back of his closet.
2: We can but hope. On both, on, but he does both of those things. <laughs> yes.
0: <Yeah. laughs> I'll take I'll take either one. I will take either one, but both of them are <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. But yeah, what you said about the cast, especially, I mean, this is amazing stuff we've got. Um Quatermass himself as in fact while i while I'm watching this, I do I, I, I have trouble remembering all the characters names half half the characters are called Charles and all the ones who aren't uh, I just remember by the names of whatever what I other know them for so we've got bravinger the butler from I from um, oh what's it called from uh, to the man born but not in a big role he's t- telling me I think he's one of the counselors and like that that went on that sitcom was one of the mo- was the most watched program in British television history ever up for a, for a few years it been from uh, later in the 70s that is
0: and he's excellent who also showed up as a befuddled character in Pyramids of Mars, playing a similarly befuddled character. He's adorable. Adorable.
2: Yeah, and he obviously made a good impression on the boss there with Paddy Russell, didn't he, <laughs> to get brought
0: back. Yes, and I believe you made a good point about Equator Mass. Uh, Andre Morel, possibly the only classic series Doctor Who actor to have a big role in a Stanley Kubrick movie. He had a fairly large part in the second half of Barry Lyndon.
2: I've never seen that one. Now I need to because I—he's I, he, one of my favourite people in the world. He's, he's just cinema. He's magnetic, you can't take your eyes off him on screen. And on, and on, on audio, he, you know, the, the voices are also good as well. Just, just purely from a, from an acting, channeling their acting and their drama into their voices. That's what I think. This, does, although there's there's, a, there's really impressive tele snaps of uh, sorry, um, uh, would you call it? The uh, video reconstruction, loose cannon. Reconstructions yes. of this, which you can find uh, in the usual places. And they've, they've done, they've worked miracles with the tiny little pictures and, and managed to blow them up and, and stick heads on bodies really convincingly and stuff like that. So you almost feel like they've got a full set of tele snaps. But, but even so, the, the, the vo- vocals of the acting are so good that I think that, that it, this works as well on, on audio uh, alone as, as it does with, with Tesla. Because,
0: yeah, I just think the, the cast is just incredible. Mm. If you go to the Loose Cannon website, Emma Thompson's dad has a fairly large role. So they sent Emma Thompson a copy of their reconstruction and they got a very nice letter back from her, which you can look at on their website.
2: Oh, he's Gaston, Eric Thompson. I'm looking at Eric Thompson. I didn't know that was her
1: dad.
0: No, that's cool. Yeah. And then we've got
2: Leonard Sachs, um, the Barusa, the. What is he? Bruce the fourth, third? I don't remember. But um, in in Ark of Infinity, where he didn't, he maybe didn't shine so well in Ark of Infinity. I looked a little bit befuddled. But he okay, at the time of this one out, even he was a huge star from doing the good from hosting the Good Old Days, and it's him that um, that that uh, Jago in um, in Tazewell Chiang is really based on, as the idea of this Victorian musical compare. And he Leonard Sachs compared the Good Old Days on BBC for. Twenty years, I think, maybe from the fifties to the eighties. Yeah, oh, thirty years, and uh, and and he was in the middle of doing that when he did this. So he was a, a, a big a celebrity face as well. I, I guess maybe because because of Hartnell's absence, maybe they really wanted to go for it with, with the famous faces on screen.
0: Yes, with Hartnell relegated to a cameo in his own story, and don't forget, yeah. you also have Eric Chitty playing Charles Presland, and he also came back in Deadly Assassin and was so adorable in Deadly Assassin. Yeah.
2: Yeah, he's one of those brilliant little character actors who turns up all over the place and, and is just always, always brilliant.
0: So between him and Michael Bilton, this story excels in having befuddled old men being yeah. cute on screen.
1: <laughs> yes. Future time, yes. Lord. Yeah. I think when I heard this when I was younger, I thought that Preslam was a real person. He's sort of presented that way, isn't he? Um, it's... It's, it's as though the doctor is yeah. meeting a real uh, famous person. Oh, he's discovered bacteria or whatever. Um, it's probably only luck that like that question didn't come up at school, and I didn't sort of put my hands up and say, "Oh yeah, Preslon invented uh, a discovered bacteria or something." Um, in a way that sometimes like you you learn something from Doctor Who when you're a kid, and it, it kind of uh, gives you a bit of a leg up, doesn't it? And, and you're able to impress <laughs> um, at school or later in life by knowing something a bit obscure. Yes, um, but and then and then no, the you way,
2: accidentally dropped Been about the teralectiles causing the Great yeah. Break. <laughs> yeah. Uh
0: But yeah, uh, but I think you guys have a very different perspective in the UK. I mean, here in the states, we we are taught that Donald Trump discovered viruses, <laughs> and it was Donald Trump in the lab who single-handedly found and cured the COVID nineteen pandemic. Uh, by George, Lynch, George, George lab is no place in American history. <laughs>
2: <laughs> He's been airbrushed. <laughs>
1: we shouldn't listen to all that fake news over here. That's the that's the trouble we've got.
2: Well, yeah, it's getting. Of you, I don't think I would have heard of this particular massacre if it wasn't a Doctor Who story. I don't remember it ever coming up in school for me. What about what about you two?
1: No, no, not at all.
0: I In my blog post on the massacre, which I put up in 2013, and I'll have Mark put out the link in the show notes, possibly the longest thing in prose that I've ever written outside of my law school seminar paper, which was 30 pages, I point out that as an American, I have no frame of reference for Protestants being an oppressed noble minority Uh
2: because
0: Protestant is the main branch of Christianity in the U.S. And the evangelicals who come out of the Protestant movement are the dominant force in politics right now. Yeah. So I grew up in the New York suburbs, in a suburb that was half Catholic, half Jewish. And I have no frame of reference for the Catholics being the villains in the story and the Protestants being the good guys. In the United States, that is completely inverted, So we know a little bit, or we're taught a little bit about the Catholics versus the Huguenots in the 16th century, but if we spent more than 30 seconds on the massacre during my 13 years of primary education, that would have been probably an overestimate as to how much time we actually spent. This was not an event that I knew anything about going into the book. And it's one of the things that made the story so challenging for me to understand, because the... It's almost like a weird, bizarro version of U.S. history where something like this could never, ever have happened. We are basically a country that was founded by Protestants, and something like this, there's no no U.S. event that relates to the massacre in any way.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, the... the that's, that's really interesting, yeah. And, and uh, I, I asked, I asked um, my dad about it, and he said that, that he, he did remember it was covered at his school back in the 40s. Uh, it was something that you were still taught then at, at school, and it was sort of done as a um, an example of how... Well, in Britain, when we had the Reformation, and, and yes, all right, Queen Elizabeth over here may have, may have burnt a few hundred Catholics, and that wasn't very nice. But over there in Europe, they went completely mad, and they were all slaughtering each other, left, right, and centre. So, aren't we lucky that we lived in a in a sensible country that didn't get carried away? I'm paraphrasing, but that was, that was the that was the gist of the message that he said it, it was um, it was sort of sold to school kids with back then. And yeah, that this, these these uh, these Catholics are, um, are basically the Catholics are basically. Sort of the monsters in this, aren't they? Mm. <laughs> they could just as easily be the Slitheen, uh, in, in in terms of Doctor Who structure. But it's got that factor. But but there is that thing, it crops up quite a lot. I'm being this seems so facile, but I'm going to do it anyway. It, it, in the Silurians, you've got the same sort of thing. You've got the the two factions within. The, the, the baddies uh, there's the ones who've compromised and at the start of this at the start of the massacre there is a compromise but it's a very wobbly compromise but it's held for a while but then you've got the hotheads who, who are not among the Catholics who think they've given too much ground and that's why it all starts to kick off because they think that we won why should we have compromised and uh, and that that is a pattern that you get within within Dr Who stories quite a lot to uh, to have that that tension within within one side that then spills over.
0: And This is the Doctor Who story where the bad guys win and there's no relief for the good guys at all and Catherine de' Medici is possibly the most terrifying villain in Doctor Who history. Hmm.
2: She really is. And She's amazing. such a good... And, and that actress was doing quite a few things but not a, never became a star but God, she's really scary, isn't she? I
0: great, mean, she's coming the Lime Grove Studio D for two weeks and she just nails it and is never brought back. It's kind of strange.
2: Mm. Yeah, two episodes. Two episodes, but God, she steals the show, and and her, um, I read a biography of her a couple of years ago because I wanted to get to know more about all this, and um, and but the biography was clearly written by someone who was who who was. Uh, and I don't think historians use the word, but she was basically standing Catherine de' Medici. She was a big fan, and it was, it was terrible that, yes, all right, she had to kill a few people here and there, but it was only because the other people were pushed her into a corner and that sort of thing. And she was, the, this, this book basically argued that she was the real victim of the massacre, because it really tarnished her reputation unfairly. Uh, and I, I think that was rather pushing it, to be frank. But, you know, it was tough. It, it was a tough world, and all, all, all the rulers were, um, were, being, uh, were, were being merciless. Uh, but the way that, but it is fair to say, the way that she's portrayed in this story isn't historically accurate in the sense that she wasn't really rubbing her hands together and going, "Ha ha, let's have a massacre and kill them all." It was supposed to have been a surgical strike that, that then just got out of hand because people saw it was coming and because the first attempted killing didn't work. That gave the other side time to try that the Protestants tried to uh, to, to jump in when they they realised that it was something was going to happen, and so that suddenly everybody leapt and everybody got their hands on their triggers metaphorically straight away uh, and that's, that's the theory that, that seems to prevail about why it happened rather than someone saying specifically let's kill 100,000 people or however many it ended up being, it's hard to imagine
0: but for the purpose of this story when you have Joan Young that's her name, I thought it was Joan Sims but it's not Joan Sims, between Joan Young and Andre morell as the two Catholic bad guys, <laughs> think about the way that Doctor Who ended a few months ago with series 12. Who is scarier, the Sacha Dewan master and a bunch of Cybermen and Time Lord hats, or those two in the massacre? I would argue that uh, Medici and Tavon are much, much scarier.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. I couldn't. Uh, yeah, I mean, they are just really chillingly powerful.
1: It's about as dark as Doctor Who can get, really, isn't it? In in terms of what you know what periods or, or events in history can the Doctor actually go to um, and probably the way that the Doctor is absent for a lot of this is is, is the way to do it um, and like you say the production team are probably a bit unsure as to uh, how much Doctor can interfere in history and they they kind of abstain a bit here by, by barely having involved at all but um, it is such a, a brutal massacre isn't it that you you can't Really, have your hero um, around too much, um, but unable to influence anything, and, and um, basically unable to save even one person. Um, the because the original script had Anne Chaplet or Chaplay joining the Tardis, um, but then even that is is denied at the last minute. I think they they thought that was that was again too much uh, interfering in history, even though she's a completely fictional um, person. Um, which also makes you think then of the Twelfth Doctor stuff of of saving one person or uh, saving one person in the Fires of Pompeii and then uh, a shielder in the... uh, Yeah, that's...
2: uh, I felt... I I really liked Fires of Pompeii but at the end I felt sort of like, oh, so he actually could have saved anyone he wanted and it was just to stop Donna crying. He could could have (laughs) saved the people next (laughs) door as well. But Donna didn't particularly care about them, so like, there isn't actually a rule here. Um, and we, we need to talk, I don't want to jump ahead because we we'll, we'll want to talk about Hartnell's speech at the end because that's a whole thing. Mm. But in that, but in that, I think he uses the word, he uses the phrase, I dare not change history. And I don't know if this is the first time he's said that, because previously it's like, I can't, or I mustn't, or we mustn't. Um, but, but in this, he specifically says he daren't change history as if, and, and I, I love how open that is. You just, you just have to imagine what terrible thing he's afraid of that, that means he daren't save someone's life. Well, uh, how scary must that be if it makes him afraid to, uh, to save a girl's life?
0: Okay. The usual step of Stephen quitting the TARDIS in protest, which leads to the light comedy of the last four minutes, but mm. it's the only time the doctor refuses to help and his only reaction is to run rather than save the day. And it's temporarily costing the companion, which is a very bold storytelling stroke for what is supposed to be a family program.
1: Yeah, it's really good, isn't it? It reminds me yeah. of Jamie in the Evil of the Daleks as well. Um, he has a similar sort of moment, and it it, it really comes alive because huh. the companions in this series don't massively probably go up against the Doctor that much. Um, but yeah, Jamie and Evil of the Daleks says something similar. Like, I'm, I'm out. Like, when this is over, I'm uh, because he thinks that the the Doctor is actually working with the Daleks to come up with the human factor. Um, and he says, well, wherever we go next, I'm, I'm I'm leaving sort of thing. And, and Stephen as well. Um, and I think it's not said here, but coming on, this comes right after the Dalek Master Plan. He's seen Caterina um, and. Uh, Gene Marsh's character die as well. So it's kind of like a cumulative effect, isn't it, of the people that have been traveling with them and that they've befriended uh, dying as well.
0: Just to give a plug for Running Through Carter's, which is where uh, Toby Haddock and Rob Shearman watch the entire Hartnell era day by day, mm-hmm. and they do an essay for every episode part, they point out that the very, the very last thing you would have seen at the end of Dalek's master plan over Sarah King's ashes would have been the caption, Next episode, War of God, and how depressing that must have
2: been. Yeah, it's really like it was, the feast of Stephen must have seemed a really long time away. Because <laughs> after that, they got all the, the jokes out of their system that that week, and then it's just right back to the back to the brutality.
0: Right, actually, for the COVID nineteen pandemic, I think before the recording, we were all showing off our Doctor Who masks. One of my Doctor Who COVID masks is the next episode caption from the end of Mythmakers. Next episode, the nightmare begins. I think it's awesome. But you cannot walk around in the United States with a mask that reads, Next episode, War of God. You will quickly be put into a uh, secret CIA uh, black site detention facility. (laughs) Under his eye. Yeah. (laughs)
2: Because how did not the ratings really start to flag during during this one? As some, For some reason, some of the kiddies weren't rushing back to watch people arguing about religion and murdering each other. Um, I, think it, I think there was a, a bit of a sag started to set in, wasn't there?
0: Um, I would argue quite the opposite. I want to go... When I get a oh, time machine, oh, a the very <laughs> first thing I'm going to do with a time machine is I'm going to travel back to the year and the month, February 1966, and I'm going to go to the British school playgrounds I guarantee you, you have thousands of children running around reenacting Catherine de' Medici and Marshall Tavans. <laughs> and they're sitting there on the sweetheart, earnestly <laughs> pounding their fists into their hands and talking about, you see shadows where there is no sun, or heresy can have no innocence. Children must have gobbled this stuff up! <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> I love it.
0: Unleash yeah. the wolves of Paris! <laughs> There is no more child friendly Doctor Who story than part three of the massacre. Please, <laughs> please. please. We can't salute ourselves. To, um, tomorrow this city
2: will weep tears of blood. That's what one of my favorite seven
0: year old is not going to run around <laughs> doing that. Dalek, uh, Daleks are for four year olds. Maybe seven year old worth of salt is going to say, Tomorrow this schoolyard shall weep tears of blood. <laughs> Transubstantiate. Transubstantiate. <laughs>
2: yeah despite considering it was written by a process of argument and and hatred it seems between the writer and the script editor it's got some really good just real zingers in it um which which are never delivered which are delivered with 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 relish but but nobody hams it up nobody Mm -hmm. is doing it's doctor who let's have a bit of fun acting uh they're all they're doing i'm i'm really worried about getting murdered today acting uh and, and uh yeah it really shows
0: toby hado points out in running through carters not to turn this uh blog into a not to turn this episode into a ad for running through carters toby hado points out this is the only doctor who episode with the word badinage in the dialogue like to say <laughs> very often in regular scripts and, and bit, if I remember, is that when he's, the guy's, when he's
2: leaving the pub and he does a, does he do an evil laugh afterwards? I think he does. I think he says, hey, I'm just here for the badinage. <laughs> which is yeah. which actually, does that, that, edge, edge towards the ham now that I've replicated <laughs> myself. <laughs> 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 but just a little bit.
1: So this is, is this episode one when the doctor's in the pub but absolutely nobody thinks he looks like the abbot of Rambois but then the next time they see him outside the pub, they're absolutely convinced that it's the uh, the abbot.
2: Uh, yeah, so he puts a different hat on or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, one doesn't even do that. Does yeah. but, you know, and they do some good... There's, you know, there's a lot of good scene setting has to be done right at the start. And, and I think quite near the start of each episode, you get a little... So we're the Protestants and they're the Catholics. And uh, there's been a... You know the, You get a little... It is an info dump, but only in the sense that you've got to, you've got to tell the audience what's happening, um, uh, and, and it's all sort of rounded up. Just, it's done be- better than usual, I think. And there's that one gorgeous po- photo, isn't there, of, um, of the Doctor and Stephen in the pub mm. that, um, that Clayton hit the claim hit rise. I think he even managed to get um, Peter Purvis t- to remember what colour his coat was, or something. Mm. Uh, and that's one of the best, one of the best photos of the whole era.
0: The set design and the costumes, just from that one photo, makes you want to weep for what we lost. Uh, weep tears of blood for what we lost. <laughs> yes. I don't know about you guys. Again, I'm coming to this from a United States background, but one of the impediments to my understanding this story is that, number one, the novelization is not the TV serial at all. Number two, the transcript is really difficult to read if you don't know who's who and who's acting who. And number three, I had a lot of trouble telling the Catholics from the Protestants, again, because this inverts the power structure in the United States. So it isn't like Thunderball, where you have, you know, the good guys are wearing blue wetsuits, so they're having an underwater ballet with <laughs> the bad guys who are all in red dress yeah. suits. I can uh, tell the Catholics and the Protestants apart and it's interesting to note that the one German character in the story has the same accent as all the French characters, so you don't even have that to rely upon. And then William Hartnell playing the Abbot, as sometimes French and sometimes British, which is even more confusing. Yeah,
2: and we're meant to think, aren't we, that, like Stephen, we're meant to think that it is the Doctor, and it's actually a twist when it turns out that it isn't. Mm. But that... Um, the weird, the weird sort of voice that he does. I guess he is meant to start trying to just try to sound like a scary priest, and he, he does. It's almost robotic. The, the sort of high takes it up to a higher register than his doctor's voice. Uh, he's obviously really enjoying it. Although it is, it is ironic that yeah, it's a story in which William Hartnell plays two characters, and neither of them appear in one episode, <laughs> apart from a tiny clip. So uh, I think I guess by the time they got around to the Enemy of the World, a couple of years later, they had more facilities for actually being able to film. Proper face-to-face meeting, like you get in the book. Like in the book, they uh, the, in the book of um, of the massacre, the doctor tricks somebody into murdering the abbot. Well, while they're both in the room together, uh, that would be um, that would have been amazing to have on screen. But I guess yeah. we would have got Edmund Warwick. Was it Edmund Warwick from the Chase? Yeah. Uh, and uh, that that wouldn't have been all that convincing.
0: <laughs> it is impossible to distinguish from the original. Uh, no doubt, no, no, it was very possible to distinguish from the yeah. original.
1: Because I think part of the inspiration for this was because William Hartnell had had this idea about um, the son of Doctor Who, didn't he, where um, there would be the Doctor's son who he would also play, um, who was going to be the new enemy. Um, so I think to sort of uh, pacify him a little bit and say, well, you can play another character, they they wrote him as the abbot. But hey, his performance isn't tremendously different from the Doctor, is it? Um, And I think, like you say, they do, they are working hard to make the audience think it's the doctor, Um, by the way, because Stephen meets him face to face and comes away absolutely convinced that it's somebody, it's the doctor pretending to be somebody else. Um, And even the way that the guy uh, says to him, uh, you know, everything seems to have started going wrong since you arrived, which is the sort of thing that people say to the doctor all the time and and would indicate that it's the doctor working against them. Um, So, yeah, it must have been quite shocking, I think, seeing the doctor's body uh, or the uh, William Hartnell playing a corpse uh, and Stephen having to search it for the TARDIS key and that kind of thing. Um, It would have been quite shocking at the time, I would imagine.
0: The most brilliant thing the massacre does is not what John Mucorati proposed, which you can read in the novelization. The novelization makes it very clear when the abbot is the abbot. And when the abbot is Hartnell playing the abbot, until, of course, they meet face-to-face at the end. But there is this myth that has spread through fandom, and it has been taken as gospel, pardon pardon the pun, that this story is William Hartnell's tour-de-force performance, and that he is at his best when he was playing the abbot, and that the abbot is uh, a true, chilling villain. None of that is true. One of the very first Doctor Who conventions I went to, of course, the first thing I did was find the William Hartnell panel and sit in, in the audience. And one of the panelists, who's a friend of mine now, and I won't say who, one of the panelists said, if I could find any missing episode and watch it, I would want to watch The Massacre Part 2 to see what William Hartnell was like as the Abbot, because I am told he was the best villain Doctor Who ever did. But the Abbot isn't even in Part 2, apart from you, say, as that one filmed insert. And if you listen to The Abbott in part three, he only has about 100 words of dialogue, which is nothing for this story. He's only in two scenes. So you have William Hartnell playing the bad guy, but he's not playing the bad guy. He's playing a henchman for the bad guy who is a dupe, who is inept, who is killed off after just two or three scenes on screen. So William Hartnell finally gets to play a double role. But instead of getting to play Magnus Griel, or instead of getting to play Matt Chen, he's playing Li Sen Chang. He's a dupe, and he's killed off long before the end of the story, in part three rather than in part four. So it is tremendously interesting to have everyone think the Doctor is the villain, but to have him be such an inept, barely seen villain has almost nothing to say, and is only in you know, the two French sentences yeah. at the end of part one, and then the two scenes where he's now British in part
2: three. <laughs> There's something going on with accents in that year. I mean, well, well little, little, little dodo <laughs> could have been French, or who knows? <laughs> or a <magazine laughs> There's an accent, accent or, of the week. Yeah. 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 But 20. yeah, it basically, the whole thing is a massive red herring, basically, isn't it? It's just, it's, just, it, it's, uh, if the Abbot just wasn't even in the story you'd still have the same story. Mm-hmm. But then Stephen just the, the second the doctor leaves the pub Stephen embarks on his mission to try and find the doctor again and just and, and that's what Stephen, Stephen's just trying to find the doctor and not get killed is, is, is Stephen's story basically isn't it and, and, mm-hmm. and help Anne if he can That doesn't go well. Because did they even meet the queen mother? They don't. It's t- right. Here's a, a British thing on this, or a twentieth-century a British thing on this. It is quite funny having the the, the the big bad, the evil being the Queen Mother. When if you grew up <laughs> yeah. in the the days when this nation had its Queen Mother as this kitsch uh, beaming <laughs> grandmother to the nation, who even people who hated the royal family would would say, "Oh, but yeah, you can't. You got to love the Queen Mum." Yeah. And so for oh no, it's, the Queen Mother is unleashing the dogs of death, etc. Uh, it would have been was just. A, I'm sure of audiences at the time the 60s would have found it a, f- a funny notion at first but but they don't make anything of it they they uh they, they don't play with that, but it, but it's a real, yeah, very counter uh, counter to what you're used to hearing. The phrase used for she just basically spent forty years opening hospitals and, and giving money and charity things to uh, to the needy. And so having having a, the Queen Mother is the big bad in this again, okay. I don't know, is that subliminally us saying how lucky we are that we British have a, have a have a kindly royal family instead of one that seeks to annihilate and genocide people.
0: Uh, and the King Charles in this story is about as effective as the future King Charles is going to be in England I imagine
2: (laughs) I could imagine a casting if you wanted to do The Massacre as a comedy um, you've got to make a few changes (laughs) to put it mildly but one of them would be one of them would be getting Hugh Laurie to rep Reprise the performance he gave as the Prince Regent in not you? <laughs> the performance he gave as the Prince Regent in Blackadder, but make him the king in this. Because yeah, he's he's the second of her three sons who ended up being kings, and she just basically was she she, she was uh, ruled the roost really from behind the throne the whole time, which is an incredible woman. To, to an incredible politician to to get to, to stay in charge for decades after the actual reason for her being queen, her husband, died. Um, but yeah, she, did, she, she was a bit murdery.
0: There's a great scene in the novelization which is not duplicated on screen. And by the way, in case you missed it, the novelization of this story quite possibly has the most and the longest run-on sentences in the history of prose. So definitely pick it up on that basis. But in the, what would have been part three on television, the first council chamber scene, the actor who plays Charles on television does not have consumption, but in real life and in the novelization he has consumption. He opens a meeting and immediately dissolves into a long, minutes-long coughing fit and has blood trickling out of his nose, and everyone else is just sitting there pretending it didn't happen, pretending the king is not dying. That would have been hilarious. That You could have made that very, very funny to film on screen, but that is not what Donald Tosh is <laughs> going for here. Which is no. the bravest thing that Donald Tosh did with the scripts for this story. He takes some of the most intense and highbrow and portentous dialogue that Doctor Who ever featured in a script, and he gives it all to tertiary characters like the Queen, the Mother, and... Professor Quatermass, tertiary characters who never meet the main cast. Mm-hmm. So some of the best words you will get in Doctor Who come from third-string characters who are only in a few scenes each who never meet Stephen and the Doctor. It's incredibly brave to do that. I don't think there's any other story, especially now with the, with the new series, there really is no room for tertiary characters at all. So you would never have a story where uh, the two shadowy characters Tertiary characters behind the scenes are getting the best dialogue and never getting to be yelled at by Jodie Whittaker. It would never happen today.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder if that. I wonder if that's more because I'm trying to think what order what, what order her career happened in. But like, I know Pad- Paddy Russell directed a lot of stuff like Zed Cars. I think the the real week in week out. Not quite so actual, still a, a drama drama, but in effect, it was filling a soap. That's what we now call a soap slot. But it's but it's a police action series still. But um, and that's got a big ensemble cast who are sharing the duties and, and, and all uh, that sort of being spread around. I, I don't know if, that, if people are more used were more used then to a, a, an episodic series like like these um, behaving in that way, whereas now it's more of a, a movie of the week. Uh, where we only have time to get to know a handful of people, yeah
1: the, the other thing you wouldn't get in the modern series but um your subsequent production teams on the classic series would keep coming up with this idea of uh, doubles wouldn't they the um the fact there 's just these naturally occurring identical people that they, oh. uh, they that they run into like you say there 's a salamander in the enemy of the world and then there's Androids of Tara and Black Orchid um, it's quite a weird thing to, <laughs> to for the same people to keep thinking of it and it's not
0: Yeah,
1: I suppose it comes you've got it in The, uh, the Prisoner of Zender but it's not not a massive sort of thing in, in other genres or anything is it?
2: No is it just the TV people wanting to show off a bit that they now have the capacity to do it you know to come, we'll, we'll, we'll convince you one actor is two different people at the same time um, and you'll get to see the meat, which you couldn't do on stage. I don't know, Maybe that's just why it felt like one of the, maybe it felt like one of the tricks in, in the TV toy box that they mm. wanted to pull out. Yeah. Other I may mentioned? be
0: dating myself here, but have either of you guys seen the Molyneux mix?
2: No. What's that? No. Or if I have I've forgotten that's what it's called.
0: John Molyneux was one of the big name fans in the UK in the eighties and early nineties. And he's killed off in No Future. Uh, as one of the uh, name check characters. But he, I don't know the full details, I've never met him, but he created this series of comic video edits and music videos using only scenes from Doctor Who stories.
2: Okay, yeah, I think some of them have got through to me, but I've never understood the full context, yeah.
0: He did a couple of videos set to Pet Shop Boys songs, and he took the Pet Shop Boys' Too Many People, and he made a video of it, where every scene in the video are the doppelganger episodes of Doctor Who. So you have Nissa shaking hands with Ann Talbot, then you have the multiple Romanas uh, in the Armageddon Factor, and you have uh, the Megalos, and you have Ark of Infinity. So it's just a three and a half minute music video with all the doppelgangers. And if Ooh. any footage had survived <laughs> from the massacre, you know he would have used that too, Oh, yeah. The evil heart. No. It's, 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 it's awesome. gorgeous to watch, but It kind of has fallen off the radar because Phantom has changed so fundamentally since uh, the 80s and 90s, and I don't believe the Molyneux mix is available anywhere online unless you happen to have an nth generation video copy that was circulating at conventions in the 80s and 90s. Someone
2: did someone linked me to a thing the other day that had the because I, I I said it would be wouldn't it be funny if someone did this and someone like sent me a link to it saying somebody did this ten years ago of the um the Raston, the Raston Warrior robot massacre in the Five Doctors, but with the robot replaced with the killer bunny from Monty Python the Holy Grail. <laughs> um that has the same kind of air to it as what you're describing. I wonder if that if that could be part of his work too, or or part for part of that uh, part of that movement. <laughs>
1: Well, I will see if I can track any of those down and uh, and put a link in the show notes if I can. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's a, just um, go back to... I <clears> think <throat> it's a distinct thing because in science fiction you often have like the evil double, don't you? The, uh, the, the, the doppelgangers and the clones and things or the, uh, like you mentioned before, the uh, Edmund Warwick uh, robot duplicate of the Doctor in the chase. Um, but it's like a subset of that is just the... The weirdly naturally occurring uh, doubles sort of thing, which uh, which it, it doesn't have a, much of a sci-fi precedent, I wouldn't have thought. So just interesting. I thought that the that uh, it's, it's it's not the same writers or anything like that, but but subsequent teams would would keep keep returning to the idea, um, but then it very much just dies out with the with the old series, doesn't it?
0: In the missing adventure, Empire of Glass by Andy Lane which is basically a counterpart to this story. It is a 1st doctor missing adventure with Stephen and Vicky, which takes place in Venice. And Stephen is basically the main character in Empire of Glass, and it's probably the best of the missing adventures of the 33 they put out. But there is a subplot in Empire of Glass where there is a galactic peace conference that is going on in Venice in the 16th century. So as Galileo... And Christopher Marlowe are running around Venice on various bits of intrigue. You have this mysterious figure assembling an intergalactic peace conference. And it turns out that the first doctor is the dead ringer for Cardinal Roberto Bellarmine, if I'm pronouncing that right, who ends up, the doctor is supposed to be a delegate at the peace conference. But because he is an exact duplicate of Cardinal Bellarmine, Cardinal Bellarmine, the Catholic priest, is abducted instead and brought to the Intergalactic Peace Conference (laughs) and has to teach all these aliens how to get along using biblical passages and, of course, completely gets it backwards. But the joke is that if you go look at a picture of Cardinal Bellarmine, who was a real person and I believe was eventually canonized, looks nothing like William Hartnell at all. A young, So Andy Lane does this book Where the Doctor being a doppelganger For an important historical figure Is the main plot point But the two look nothing alike It is not possible to look less alike Than the Cardinal <laughs> and William Hartnell So if you want to see Doctor Who Doing a doppelganger right Empire of Glass is the book for you
2: And is William Hartnell in every chapter Or does he have a few chapters off <laughs> For a uh, summer holiday
0: it doesn't, like a, <laughs> it doesn't work like that. set several chapters off because they were trying to fire William Hargrove from the books,
2: too. <laughs> <laughs> he had friends in high places. I like the way that each episode, is this another thing, that this will sort of sit nicely on four sides of vinyl, is, won't it? because each episode is a day, mm-hmm. and I think that, uh, and in fact, we're today, as we, as we are speaking, hang on, well, I did the maths, today is the 448th anniversary of Priest of Death, supposedly happening today we're, we're recording this on on the on the exact uh date in august of episode three Wait, so Mark, uh, that but, means
0: you have you have to release this on monday so that we can have the actual <laughs> real life bell of doom
2: yeah because today is the massacre of followers eve eve or the eve of the massacres but what, what do you think this story's called <laughs> i'm happy with it. yeah it is isn't it i don't know why the rest got added at some point but I think is that is that a personal preference, or is that because you found paperwork that absolutely proves it?
0: There are there are special people in fandom who have spent years trying to rename what we call stories. And <laughs> if you're on records Doctor Who in the 1990s, you had this faction of big name fans who insisted that the first three episodes were 100,000 BC, the mutants, and inside the spaceship. And some of the FAQs and episode guides circulating on Who* in the 90s actually used those titles. It became fashionable to call the story the Massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve. But even as an American who didn't learn about this event in school, because it's not a thing here, there is no such thing as St. Bartholomew's Eve. The massacre took place on St. Bartholomew's Day. The Massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve would have been Part 3, which is not really a massacre at all. So whoever thought that they wanted to call the story that, it makes no historical sense. So I'm going with the novelization. I don't have any paperwork. I've never been in the archives. I'm nobody in the grand scheme of things. But this story is only called The Massacre. It is not The Massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve. And if you tried to call it The Massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve, the spine of the target novelization would have needed to be twice as long in order to fit all those words. Or it would have been zero point five percent type. It would have been impossible to read on the bookstore shelves.
2: This, that's a practical reason, in addition to in addition to a preference or historical one. Yeah,
0: because the tribe of Gum did not take place in one hundred thousand BC, and there was no massacre of Saint Bartholomew's Eve. So. Those 1990s alternate episode titles have fortunately faded out of the mainstream because we have a new generation of fans that is more upset about the Doctor being female. So we have other things to fight about now than episode <laughs> titles.
2: It was also civilized back in those days. I mean, we were just arguing about what the right font to use was or whether it mattered that they had the word the at the start of Horror of Fang Rock. <laughs>
0: It's funny how there's still... That was used- the real horror of Rock, the fact that it didn't begin with <laughs> yeah. That was the horror. Thing. I can't remember
2: now, which is theres not is. There isn't, is there? Is that No, there isn't.
0: Never, never mind the root hands and the body count. The fact that the story never not begin with <book>. yeah.
1: <laughs> the I Yeah. Obviously, the complete history lists it as the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve. But the... I haven't got the vinyl in front of me. I left it upstairs. I, um, I should have brought it down. I think that's just got the massacre...
2: On the it has, yeah, I've got the art up on my screen. Mm. The, 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 said it before, I'll say it again, the beautiful art. I mean, there's somebody sort of. There's a distant TARDIS under an orange glowing bridge. There's a man, a man at the front with a sword looking looking away and somebody's being, being possibly massacred, in fact, in front of yeah. the TARDIS. A bit of a spoiler.
0: The cover of the novelization, by the way, the original cover, is one of the most gorgeous pieces of art in the novelization range because you have the TARDIS being burned at the stake You have the abbot as William Arnaud on a cloak, and you have the 16th century Parisian architecture in the background. It's just a gorgeous, gorgeous cover if you can track it down. I've got a photo of it on my blog post, which Mark will hopefully link to in the show notes.
2: Excellent, was. yeah. In the, in the late 80s they really made up for the, the, the awful Davison photo covers, crimes mm-hmm. of the early 80s. <laughs> they suddenly realised if they actually put a really nice picture on the front people were more likely to buy it. <laughs> and, uh, and, we, and we got a lovely run of, of covers. Uh, yeah.
0: Well, to be fair, the only photo you could have put on the cover of a photo cover of The Massacre <laughs> would have been one of the loose cannon composite photos where sometimes Eric Thompson has a beard and sometimes Eric Thompson doesn't have a beard and David Weston's big head is on the wrong little body. That would have been a awkward novelization cover if Blues uh, Cannon yeah. telesnaps had been the uh, source material.
2: Or just uh, or just have uh, Catherine de Medici on the front, but then that would be too scary for children, and they would have uh, they would put it on the top shelf to stop it giving people nightmares.
0: Nah, Those kids are running around the playground playing savants <laughs> and Catherine de Medici would have loved that. <laughs> there was a. I remember in one of. Do you, do you remember one of Dog 2
2: magazine's spoof um, columns all the time? They had a uh, – from, from the makers of the tricky action Dalek, they had a tricky action Catherine de' Medici. <laughs> <laughs> you could pull, pull her back and she went roll, uh, she'd went go rolling off. Um, with, uh, yeah, if only. Someday it'll come out. Someday the, the Doctor Who figurine collection hasn't got to it yet. I can't see an animatronic one turning up in the B&M sets that they're making because I don't think they have any large matronly widow – Figure of costumes already in their rack that they can c- customize to make a Doctor Who figure out of. Cause that's yeah. why there's a lot of them, isn't it? They, they they've got other other ranges and they can just adapt bits and pieces of other of other characters to make as a, a Yaz, and they just need to do new hair for her or something. But, yeah, we um, BN- can't imagine the market.
0: That is how Kenner made the original Star Wars action figures in 1977. They took figures from other lines that have nothing to do with Star Wars and put on the uh, yeah. molded heads of uh, of the Star Wars cast.
2: That's
0: ingenuity. That's real ingenuity. Definitely. So. what is fandom even for if we don't have a Catherine de Medici action figure? <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, we uh, we'll have to write to being and Bargains forthwith and uh, demand that from them. Really <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah, and a, and a mass.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Something else about the novelization is. The novelization makes clear that Dodo and Anne Chaplet are dead ringers for one another, but in the book, Anne Chaplet has Auburn curls, kind of like Nissa, which is nothing like Jackie Lane's hairstyle as Dodo.
1: Yeah, I believe from the current yeah. history, there was more dialogue at the end of, um, of episode four that made it clear that um, Dodo was supposed to be a descendant of Anne, but Hartnell forgot or flubbed the, the dialogue, so it's, it's left ambiguous
2: because it would have required a rather fantastical line of extremely ahead of their time surname-keeping French women to have, to have uh, gone on through the generations, uh, but, uh, but we can roll with that.
1: The, the About Time uh, book on this one has the theory that um, Stephen got Anne pregnant when they spend the night together in Prezon's shop, uh, that she escaped the massacre and um, uh, and then sort of reinvented herself uh, with um, a fictional husband who died in the massacre, thereby keeping her name. Um, and uh, that, that Dodo is actually one of uh, one of Stephen's descendants as well, uh, which I suppose would tie in with the the really? new series. Type of thing where the the uh, the telepathic circuits can can sort of find people in that way, can't they? When they find um, Danny Pink's ancestor uh, way off in the future and that type of thing.
0: We need to have a fanfic where Steven and Dodo hook up, <laughs> and they have a child together who ends up being a terrible mutant because Steven is Dodo's grandfather. <laughs>
2: The Dodo paradox,
0: yeah. Where it's the grandfather paradox, but the grandfather is Stephen, and Dodo goes back in time and kills Stephen and then ceases to exist. <laughs> God, I thought I thought the books had given her a dark enough life already, but you're
2: going even further. Oh,
0: God, we're talking about who killed Kennedy, aren't we? <laughs> yes, poor Dodo. Uh, yes, uh... That story is not part of my headcanon, unfortunately. I'm actually a Dodo fan. It's a shame what happened to Jackie Lane on this show. Mm. But I guess that means we're going to segue into talking about the last four minutes of the massacre and how jarringly atonal it is with the rest of the story. Well, even that, I would split it in half. Let's talk about the
2: first two minutes of the last four minutes and then the last two minutes of the last four minutes, because that... That scene with, that, I still think Hartnell, Hartnell's speech on his own uh, there. The, so the first time I ever heard this was on audio cassette, I think, when it came out, and I, and I just put it on to listen to one, and I knew nothing about what was going to happen. And I followed it along, right? I thought it was all right. I, I didn't know what tone of story I was going to get. But I had no idea that he ever got to do a talk, a speech like he did about perhaps I should go home back to my own planet, but I can't. And then he sort of sobs and says, I can't again. And, and, and just that one line for me is that if that, if that clip existed, I'm certain that's the one that we'd always be being shown whenever there was a montage and needed a little clip of Hartnell. Um, Cause it's just so, sort of connected to, to what the Doctor does become, but at the time the, the idea that he has a home planet is something that's briefly mentioned at the start and then they don't don't really go back to it But except here, they, they go back to it full on, and he remembers everyone's names and he gets Chatterton wrong, exactly as he always did and you know, I thought, that's really moving and then it just goes completely fucking bonkers <laughs> <laughs> and, and Dodo appears There's an
0: urban legend And this was, again, it was the received wisdom on records in the early 90s that Donald Tosh had written this long, dense, multi-page speech uh, for that scene and that Hartnell was already ill and couldn't remember it and only delivered a few scattered impressions of the scripted speech. And the received wisdom is that, well, we are missing what the speech would have been because Hartnell was a bad actor and couldn't remember it and was senile. And then it turns out that folks on records who had seen the the, uh, the camera script said that's not the case. Hartnell delivered the speech exactly as scripted and didn't forget anything. Yeah. So, which makes it even more interesting because that means that they deliberately wrote the speech as a broken doctor who couldn't remember his words and got Chesterton's name wrong again mm-hmm. and was constantly searching for for, for the next sense. So that is a great scene, and then you have the last two minutes, which is the Family Guy version of Doctor Who, where <laughs> Steven impliedly causes this horrible motor vehicle accident on the street, and <laughs> yes. a small child killed. It was Steven, wasn't was, it? And Dodo is chasing him back into the TARDIS to bring him to justice and call the police, and then he winds up inside <laughs> of a time machine. Now, so we have no idea why he ran back inside the ship, but it must've, he must have caused the most horrible horrible accident It must have killed this innocent child in the most dreadful ghastly way you have no idea what happened but oh, uh, his
2: line, line is yes I've come back but we can't go into that now <laughs> <That's an explicit. laughs> yeah. imagine quitting your job and storming out and then just 10 minutes later wandering back in and going yes I've come back we can't go into it now <laughs> I'm <just>, i I'm there's <laughs> been a terrible
0: accident there's blood everywhere get us out of here quick you Stephen, what did you do? Uh, we can't go into that now. Get out of here. If you're going to wash the
1: blood off my cloak. Yeah, because but... <laughs> yeah, having just criticized the doctor for not saving Anne or saving anybody, um, he's he's suspiciously anxious to get away from the scene of an accident where somebody else's life might be in danger. I don't I think there's any other way of reading it other than yeah. Stephen's got something to do with it because why else would he be bothered? He says, oh, there's some police on the way, but why Why would he care? <laughs>
2: He was just so angry after his argument with the doctor. He just walked out and kicked yeah. the first person he saw, which turned out to be a small child, which then fell in front of a car. It
1: just seems needlessly
2: brutal. The child's
0: head rolling down the street. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it seems needlessly brutal to have it as a child as well that's been involved in the accident. I mean, that, I suppose, is the bit that's in keeping with the tone of the rest of the story, um, that it's a little boy, that it's not... Uh, you know any other kind of accident? Uh, you know, it's um, it, it's got to be a kid that's in danger. Uh, but an early yeah. draft, an early draft of the script had a cameo from Ian and Barbara at this point as well, that they would be walking along and see the see the TARDIS just as it was materialising, uh, dematerialising even. Uh, but it never came to pass, whether they weren't available or whatever. Um, but that, I think that would have been. Uh, something that you'd want to see even more like you say it's a story that uh, you really you feel it's lost because it's so good and then there's heartless speech at the end which you'd like to see but then the last appearance of Ian and Barbara again would have been something that, uh, that you'd have felt was missing
0: that's like Marjorie Undead which was supposed to be Ian's return and that's why the Brigadier is a maths teacher mm. any time I watch Marjorie Undead I'm like why cannot we have had Ian Chesterton back for this one story yeah because their, uh, Coronation Street
2: paid much better, basically it was <laughs> at the time. I think, was, I, think I think that I think that was the reason. Sadly, but yeah, yeah, that would have been. It was so perfect for Ian. I mean, Bonus Brigadier is great, but it was it was so perfectly made for Ian. Yeah. Mm. And,
0: and again, it again makes you weep, weep, tears of blood for what we lost by not getting that little cameo from Ian and Barbara.
2: Yeah, yeah. I bet that might have even made the episode noteworthy enough for someone to have kept it.
0: <laughs> well, that, that, that's why Megalos survived the purge of the early 80s episodes because somebody really wanted to have Jacqueline Hill on camera and that's why we have <laughs> Megalos to this day somebody saved Megalos thank you because of Jacqueline Hill otherwise Megalos might have been lost for all time and we'd be talking praise about me. how good it must have been <laughs> praise be to Ty <laughs>
2: that's the only thing I remember about Megalos they say that a lot
0: <laughs> but they sing it so it's even better hmm. <laughs> so the moment, and then they never do any of this again. <laughs> the next week, they're off on the ark,
2: and 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 yeah, but and, and things get the the tone. Changed, I mean, it couldn't, it couldn't stay this dark, could it? And and the tone the tone gets a lot gets brighter in subsequent stories.
0: It's where Dodo brings the human coronavirus to the descendants of humanity <laughs> in the fifty seventh <57th> segment <laughs> yeah. of time. And the human coronavirus does to the Ark what the novel coronavirus has done to the United States under Donald Trump.
2: And still, it seems like light relief compared to the massacre, (laughs) which is saying something.
0: There's a really neat bit of dialogue in part one of the massacre, War of God. Next episode, War of God, where Stephen is trying to explain why he doesn't know what's going on between the Catholics and the Protestants in 16th century France. And he says he's been in Egypt. Now, thinking back to Egypt, which is a reference to the two comedy episodes late in Dalek's Master Plan, where Hartnell and uh, Peter Butterworth are clowning around the Great Pyramid, it is so odd to flash back to that lighthearted comic romp in Mm. episodes 9 and 10 of Master Plan and have that reference to this dark, serious, moody story. It's a very jarring continuity reference. It's almost like those two episodes take place in different universes. You have, you know, yeah, uh, you have the monk disguised as a mummy coming out of the coffin for a cliffhanger. And then you have this really dark, moody story about religious war. And it shows you how much Doctor Who can change whiplash style from week to week. And then, of course, the next episode after this are the uh, space apes with the Beatles' haircuts. Mm hmm. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Okay. Doctor Who spends four weeks weighing up the pros and cons of slavery, and at the end decides it's a really bad way of doing things, and everyone should just be friends instead. I love that. That's like amazing. Um, yeah. Really glad he came. Down, really glad he came down on that side in the end of that story. Yeah. Well, it,
0: was, it was it was touch and go. <laughs> yeah. but
2: considering, that's
0: considering how much Elizabeth Sander hates Elizabeth, I'm gonna re, I'm gonna re, re, re-record that. Considering how much Elizabeth Sandifer hated the Ark in the TARDIS Arundhatirom books and website, uh, we're giving the Ark a much more charitable reading than she did. But my point is a larger one. You go from the lush costumes and sets of the massacre to the security kitchen the next week. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, just, just you know, it's
2: really interesting seeing where the where the money went on different stories. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering which one's got that, and I I just. The Massacre just feels like a big-budget story, even though it's it's a historical. Um, the, because of the cast and because of the, the sets and everything, which maybe were available from stock, I don't know, but it does feel really um, like, that I have really pushed out on this. It's not a cheap little let's just do a historical because we've got no money. This is a, It's meant to be a big story, particularly because we've come out of the Dalek Massacre and This is the first attempt to do something different.
0: Well, the arc was hamstrung by a production choice because the director wanted to have this really elaborate, multi-level prison set, the security prison, but the production team blew all their money on the Beatles' wigs for the monoids, and they ran out of money to build the multi-level prison, so they ended up with the security kitchen instead. But those Beatles' wigs really make the story, so (laughs) we'll always have have the beetle-haired aliens.
2: That's the only way that we know the 60s really happened.
0: Yes.
1: It's <laughs> a similar thing in the Enemy of the World, isn't it, where they just guard the guy in the corridor. Uh,
0: and the after, Barry, uh, after Barry lets do all the budget for the helicopter in, in, in Part mm-hmm. 1, they had a uh, security yeah. corridor in Part 3.
1: Yeah.
2: Good. And then we get the waiting zone, waiting zone in the Happiness Patrol. <laughs> Which is just <laughs> yeah. a line in a corridor. <laughs> All paid lots of homage to in Orphan 55, of course, with the uh, with the armory and the linen cupboard. But mm-hmm. these things never go.
0: <laughs> because what is a more lighthearted romp than Orphan 55? Orphan 55 makes the massacre I know. look like City of Death, or makes the massacre look like, uh, um, insert name of... Comic, one-dimensional Doctor Who story here. <laughs> There's only so much brutality we can fit into one podcast. <laughs> I love the end of Orphan 55 where Jody Whittaker turns to the camera and says, It's too late! The environment is destroyed! Kill yourselves now! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I,
2: mean, I do it's one of my one of my favourite because to me again God we go so far off topic yet but to me that's all that's just like taking the, the speeches that the Doctor does which sometimes are a bit overdone and say right we're turning this up to 400 we're just turning it up and turning it up and turning it up um, but yes we're just talking about all of Doctor Who now aren't we it's hard not to it's really hard not to
0: this story is so depressing you can't talk just about the massacre because you will want to pull an Orphan 55 and kill yourself at the end <laughs> I mean, think about think about how the doctor saves the day in the massacre. He shows up again at the end of part, at the beginning of part four. Stephen goes, "Where have you been?" And the doctor is like, "I don't even know what day it is." And Stephen goes, "It's August blank, like 1572." And the doctor goes, "What?" And he runs. He leaves. He runs away. He flees. As soon as he finds out what the date is, he runs. He doesn't try to make it better. He doesn't try to help. He gets to the Tars, they leave like seven minutes into the story, and then the massacre happens, and the Doctor and Stephen had nothing to do with it, and everybody dies, except for the Catholics. Yeah. It's you can only do this once because it completely implodes the idea of the doctor as a hero. Even in early season one episodes where he ran away at the end like Marco Polo, he at least did some things to make to make it better. Or, you know, the massacre. You couldn't save civilization, but you did save one man. The massacre has none of that. The doctor completely fails. He just flees with the city burning at his back, and you could never do that again. So we're lucky that we have it, but it's literally a story that you could only tell once. And again, to mention running through corridors for the 17th time in this recording, my apologies, Mark. uh, Rob and Toby point out that the last four minutes is almost Donald Tosh flipping the bird to – the incoming production team. I've made the most realistic story ever and this is what will happen if you time travel. And now we're gonna make it funny again so you guys can have your show back.
2: Right, yeah, yeah. it's go- I think it's going back to the style of the myth I say back to the style of the Myth Makers. I mean the Myth Makers is a comedy but still everyone gets brutally killed at the end of it but but it's it's got more gags. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and that's the a tonal jump
0: saying woe to the horse. <laughs>
1: The whole i we talking about, I guess, is the is the constant the the behind the scenes stuff being constantly in flux, and the the production team's changing, and the chopping and changing of companions as well, kind of unceremoniously, um, you know, sort of killed or dropped off at, the, at various places. Um, but I think you can see why they brought the fixed points in time idea in, in the new series. Um, because it does protect the idea of the doctor being the hero, doesn't it? If um, if you can just say oh, literally, these are the things I can change, and these are things I can't. Um, because it was the massive discrepancy between the doctor arriving on present day Earth or an alien planet or the future and being able to do absolutely anything. Um, but but you know, it's past, saying, well, I can't change anything here. Um, so that's just a fixed point. In time, idea mm. um, you, you kind of levels that's all that out, and, and yeah, gives it a bit more, uh, a bit, a bit more logic to. <laughs> it.
2: it sets your writers free to decide how much peril there is actually going to be.
1: Yeah, yeah. that's cool. it. Because there's, uh, I guess, there's so many points in history, like you saying before, that you just couldn't put the Doctor into. Um, and when they do, the sort of the Second World War or something, it's. Uh, you know, it let's kill Hitler. It's it is it's much more of a comedy episode, isn't it? You, you wouldn't go to the uh, uh, the darker elements of, um, of, of the conflict, or you're on the periphery, like Curse of Fenric.
0: Mm.
2: Mm. Yeah, yeah.
0: This story possibly suggests why historicals had to be phased out because you start running out of famous historical events to talk about. And the massacre hinges upon this really obscure event, at least from, from my point of view. So if, if, if they had kept going and they had to dramatize increasingly obscure historical events, had the Hartnell era gone on for seven or eight years, I mean, you would have you gone on to, uh, you know, in the year 712, this village massacres that village and we're going to talk about it and Tucker, why couldn't you save them?
2: Yeah, it has to be. Uh, the rules have got to you rules have got to change from yes. from one phase of the show to another.
0: Which is why the historicals eventually went away for so long. Although I would love to give the Hartnell historical treatment to uh, more recent historical events, like uh, the Watergate scandal in the States in the early seventies. I would love to do a Hartnell era. Oh, wow. Completely factually inaccurate version of Watergate, where Nixon <laughs> mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, has got a private army of jacked thugs, and uh, guns are being fired, and the partner goes to the Oval Office and goes, How dare you, sir? That would be great to see.
2: <laughs> you, you, almost any situation with someone going, How
0: dare you, sir?
2: is probably uh, <laughs> a, a winner in my book.
0: <laughs> Although Stephen Moffat later had uh, the Matt Smith Doctor convince Richard Nixon to record everything in the Oval Office which is funny in and of itself yeah.
1: <laughs> yes you have to record everything Richard <laughs> <laughs> this is why they bring aliens in, into all the historicals and I suppose because the, the that's the focus then is the doctor defeating the aliens not averting horrible things in history isn't it it, it gives him something to do uh, where he can win and save the day but without actually affecting history and uh, uh, correcting any horrible things like
0: the massacre. That was my mother's biggest complaint. The only new series episode my mother has seen was Vincent and the Doctor. And she loved it, but she's like, why do they have to have an alien in it? I'm like, that's just what Doctor Who is. There's aliens everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I think mean, Demons of the
2: Punjab is a, is a similar one. I mean, that's one about a historical massacre um, that – that has aliens in it because it's doctor who you could have you could just do a story that, that had those characters going through all the stuff that they go through in that just leave out the aliens but then you haven't got a doctor who episode anymore
0: mm. but of course demons does the very wise choice of having the aliens passive observers who are there to pay tribute to those who are about to die so at least there are yeah. aliens who are mucking about with the course of history so maybe, no, I guess would, maybe Evenance is as close as the new series gets to, to restaging the massacre, only with a slightly yeah. happier ending.
2: Yeah, full circle. Yeah.
0: This Grandmother as the Anne Chaplet slash uh, Dodo Chaplet version of the story where she survives with a with broken watch. Mm. As opposed to Dodo surviving with a broken Mancunian accent that mysteriously disappears <laughs> two weeks later.
1: Yeah, it's an odd one that, isn't it? Uh, the, again, if somebody behind the scenes said uh, the accent's got to go, so it just with no explanation disappeared from from one scene to the next. It's like Jane
0: herself disappeared without explanation from one episode yeah. to the next <laughs> in the middle of the
1: War machines. Have you seen X-Men first class? There's there's a Michael Fassbender plays Magneto in that and he plays it um with sort of english accent throughout except for one scene on the beach and he plays it with an irish accent it's really weird and jarring
2: Just, <laughs> i'm gonna say recorded that first uh, or last yeah but one you th- of the two, I guess.
1: You'd think they would still have done adr or something wouldn't you it's um it's, yeah. it's very strange yeah, yeah.
0: There was an episode of House M.D. where Hugh Laurie's character, Dr. House, has to call the United Kingdom and pretend to be a British doctor. And he puts on the most ridiculously bad, over-the-top British accent. <laughs> and you realize that that's the joke because Hugh Laurie, of course, is putting on an American accent for for, for the entire series. And when he gets back into his native British accent, it's awful. <laughs> Does it, was it just his
2: natural talking voice he switched to, or did he do a bit of a self-parody? Uh, a complete self-parody. It's self
0: parody. <laughs> <You're Okay>. probably a <laughs> a clip on YouTube somewhere. It is a complete self-parody.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he's great in Avenue 5. I don't know if you've seen this. Uh, Amanda Iannucci's show, where he's um, the captain of a, a, a cruise ship in space. Um, basically, and he's he's a basically a British actor who's been hired to do an American accent because people find it more calming and uh, and soothing and heroic if he's if he's American, and then they're all absolutely disgusted when they learn that he's actually British. <laughs> uh, it's a very good show if you haven't seen it.
0: We've spent so much time being traumatized by the massacre that we're talking about literally anything else to move on to a happier <laughs> subject. True. <laughs> sure. I mean, The Massacre is not the most enjoyable Doctor Who story, and it's difficult to figure out who's who and what is what without the surviving video. But I don't think Doctor Who ever had a better series of scripts, and it almost breaks the show because once you do the story, you can never tell another Doctor Who story again because the Doctor is exposed as somebody who can't fix anything, and Steven is exposed as inept and... uh, tries to pay for one glass of wine with a very expensive gold coin and doesn't know what he's doing. And then uh, all the doctor does is send Anne Chaplin off to her death, and the only way to save her is to bring her back as Dodo four centuries later, which makes no sense at all. So the massacre is just amazingly immersive, and it's so depressing, and it's so downbeat, and it destroys the show. And the only way to save it is with that last... uh, four-minute scene, which, is, which veers from beautifully scripted drama to bizarre uh, <laughs> comedy with uh, Stephen covered in blood after murdering a little boy. <laughs> so, And then, of course, the is, next week is the art. So the the, the, the <laughs> Massacre is so good that it basically destroyed Doctor Who and left the tattered remnants behind. You can never tell. That, that sounds like a hashtag. <laughs> that sounds like a hashtag. <laughs> <laughs> massacre destroyed Doctor Who. <sighs> So I love the story. I will defend the story. I will talk about the story for 90 minutes. And I think it's brilliant. And it's just so difficult. You can never tell this story again. It's an interesting avenue, but it's a doctor who never tried to do that again, and thankfully because well I guess apart from Orphan 55 where Jody Whitaker turns to the camera and says, You're all gonna die. But, uh, yes. Massacre is much better than Orph55, so not even fair to put the two in the same sentence.
2: Oh, you had me right up till there, but um, <laughs> but, but um, yeah, it's a fantastic story, and and this, and this release just looks fantastic, just looks brilliant, uh, and the the orange vinyl is, is really striking. They put real care into it.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, as you say, it's, it's physically a, a stunning stunning release. Um, and yeah, look, it doesn't matter whatsoever about the color of the the discs themselves. I've always ended up paying a little bit more to get the because, <laughs> uh, like with the the Dalek Master Plan, there's the standard edition with the the black vinyl discs, and then there's the. Uh, I can't remember what the what the name is for the for the pattern on them, but I pay like an extra 15 quid to get those, even though it makes no difference to the uh, the listening experience and your enjoyment of the story. But well, they look so nice going round. <laughs> it's on the, pretty. Yeah, it's, it's really pretty, and they, they look so great going around on the turntable. Um, so uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but with this one you've you've just got that edition, and they will be available in all good uh, record stores for record store day today and i think i think last year's um they were then available on amazon afterwards as well i don't think it's a massive limited edition or anything so uh, I guess if you're self isolating or you can't make it to a shop then um you should still be able to get hold of one hopefully um they say it's a, it's a great story and a really interesting listen and uh yeah the, probably the, the the darkest that the doctor who went and the most realistic as a as a look at time traveling into history so uh, yeah, definitely one would be fairly high up my list of ones to find. I think I feel like the, the missing episodes. I don't revisit them as often, so uh, the vinyl releases are a good excuse to go back to them and uh, and listen to them again.
0: It behooves you, Mark, now to video a 12-second Instagram or TikTok story style a video of just the massacred discs spinning around on your turntable just so we get a sense of what it looks like spinning around i think (laughs) you need to give us that now
1: i can i can do that i will will put that on twitter with the uh with the link to the podcast cool and the the next uh vinyl release from the good people at demon music group is marco polo which because this one's delayed he's only about in about two weeks i think uh, so hopefully you'll join us again on the on podcast when I'll be talking about that with Denise and Sophie. In the meantime, you can find uh, Pete and Jason on, on Twitter, and I will put links to those and Jason's blog in the show notes. Uh, thank you very much for listening, and special thanks to Lydia Peeney and Demon Music Group. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye. <laughs>